We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today's episode of Big Screen Sports is brought to you by BarkBox. Treat your pets with one free extra month of BarkBox at GetBarkBox.com slash Big Screen. That's GetBarkBox.com slash Big Screen. Guess I'm going with a safe shot, boys. But you know, sometimes I fan that too. Ooh. You better give me the three. Is this normal behavior for him? Well, the word normal and him don't often collide in the same sentence. And sometimes I catch that three a little thin too. And I've hit flyers with the four. Hit the damn ball rolling. Mm-hmm. I hooked my five. I shanked the six. Sculled the eight. Batted the nine. Chili dipped the wedge. And I laid at the sand. Hunter? Yeah. There is old Mr. Three Wiggle, isn't there? But then there's a seven iron. I never miss with the seven iron. Welcome back to Big Screen Sports, the sports movie podcast breaking down the authenticity of your favorite sports films. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today, I'm really excited to be doing a golf movie. We're doing Tin Cup. Uh, It's been a long time coming to do golf on this podcast, but really, when you look at the sports movie genre, there's not really as many golf movies, especially, you know, compared to baseball and football movies. There's really only four or five, you know, depending on how you break it down. But, you know... Tin Cup is a classic, regardless of sport. It's got Costner, Don Johnson, Cheech, uh, just, you know, a good, fun movie. On this one, I was lucky to be joined by Chris McNeil. You might know him on Twitter at Reflog underscore 18. He's the co-host of the Big Play Cleveland Reflog show and a big-time golf fan. Uh, He's got a big Twitter following as well. And we had a really good discussion about the movie, especially that polarizing last scene I think with Tin Cup, you either love that last scene or you really hate it. So we got into a, uh, a spirited discussion on that. We both kind of leaned the same way, but it was a fun scene to break down. With the podcast, please make sure you're subscribed uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Make sure you rate, leave a review. I love reading those reviews. I love reading what you know movies you guys want us to do. Got a couple requests from Moneyball. That's definitely in the in the pipeline. Got a review on a movie called Let It Ride, which I've never heard of, but you know I'll I'll definitely look into it again. I want to do every single sports movie possible at some point with this podcast. So you know, just please make sure you rate, leave a review. That's a great way to you know help this podcast grow and uh, you know hopefully do every sports movie we can think of. Make sure you're following on Twitter at Big Underscore Screen Sport on Instagram at Big Screen Sports Pod to get just some general sports movie content as well as be up to date on upcoming episodes. We're doing Summer Catch next week with the guy over at Foulpool Sports, so that should be a good one to look into. But for now, it's time to get into Tin Cup with Chris McNeil. All right, both today's movie and sport is a long time coming on this podcast. We've yet to do golf. I'm happy to introduce tonight's guest to cover it. He's the co-host of the Big Play Cleveland Reflog Show, Chris McNeil, also known as at Reflog underscore 18 on Twitter. Chris, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I am doing great. Great, Kyle. How are you? 
I'm doing great. I appreciate you coming on the podcast to uh, to talk Tin Cup. Before we get going with the movie, uh, for people who might be unfamiliar with your work and your massive Twitter following, what's your background in sports media with Cleveland Sports? And more importantly, first off, uh, explain what your uh, your Twitter handle is because it's important for the movie Tin Cup. Yeah, so it's crazy, right? I've got a Twitter account that's got over 200,000 followers or something like that. And basically, it's all spurned from my love of sports overall and kind of my sarcastic and and witty, I guess some would say, nature. Uh, but it's really exploded over the last couple of years and, and, and really just from talking like I would guys in a bar about sports, which is what we're going to be doing tonight about Tin Cup. And uh, you asked about my handle. So my handle at reflog underscore 18, that was glossed to me by a friend of mine who doesn't golf at all and always thought it was very unique that I played the game of golf in high school. And uh, reflog is just golfer backwards. And the 18, of course, is just 18 holes in golf. I've had a lot of smart asses point out that it should be reflog 81 as opposed to reflog 18 if I'm truly turning it all backwards. But in my opinion, they're just being jerks about it. So, And then uh, my AV that's in there is also golf-related. That comes from the 2010 Ryder Cup. And Kyle, I don't know if you remember this picture, but there's a fantastic picture from that Ryder Cup of Tiger Woods hitting a ball directly at the camera. And as you pan back and you look at the crowd behind him, off to the right, there's this mustachioed guy with a big cigar. And he just comes out of nowhere. He looks like in the original that it's completely photoshopped. And he was so out of place that he became a Photoshop legend and was all over the place when I first started on Twitter. So I naturally made him my AV. Uh, but basically, this guy just showed up um, and was a fan of the European Ryder Cup team and dressed as his favorite player, which was Angel Jimenez. And uh, that was his costumed look. And he became quite famous and uh, became my AV. So got a lot of golf connections on my Reflog Twitter account. It was one of the first things I remember going viral on Twitter. It was right after I, I actually got into Twitter, and that picture was one of the first things I remember is just being everywhere and being one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there were so many good Photoshops done with that. I'm still finding more, but almost every famous photo that's ever been taken throughout U.S. and world history has had the cigar guy Photoshopped onto it at one point or another. It's great. Yeah, it's it is. It's it's just funny as hell. But uh, you know, clearly you've got a golf background, which is good because today we're talking about Tin Cup. Tin Cup is the 1996 sports comedy. A washed-up golf pro working at a driving range tries to qualify for the U.S. Open in order to win the heart of his successful rival's girlfriend. The movie got a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is nice. nice. Starring Kevin Costner, Renee Russo, Don Johnson, and Cheech. From Cheech and Chong. Costner was actually nominated for a Golden Globe for this movie, which is which that. is pretty crazy. Yeah, I, did, yeah. I didn't know it until I uh, until about an hour ago. But uh, yeah, <laughs> Costner got nominated for a Golden Globe. Um, real quick, uh, free plug here: if you want to go read something awesome about this movie and learn a lot about this movie, Golf.com a couple years ago did an incredible oral history on Tin Cup. I'll tweet it out uh, from our social media. I'll tweet it out on Twitter at big underscore screen sport. But it is, it, it's one of the better film oral histories uh, I've ever read. And I think one of the, the interesting things about this movie before we really dive in, it's 96, so this is pre-Tiger. Tiger doesn't, this movie might have been very different if it was you know made a year or two later. Yeah, yeah, it's funny because the the hottest golfer at the time was Peter Jacobson, and you see him prominently in the lead at the U.S. Open there, and he was one of the big ones. and And shortly after there, he was basically in the booth and really wasn't much of a player. So it, it's wild how you have that kind of turn in the PGA Tour, and and I'm sure we'll talk about it. But there's a lot of stars that are on there that you kind of forgot about back in the day. Yeah, yeah. So, the, yeah, this movie would have definitely had a, uh, a different feel because Tiger obviously wins 97 Masters, takes the world by storm. Real, you know, first things first, is this a Hall of Fame, all-star, starter, or bench warmer sports movie for you? Okay, so this is a tough question right out of the gate for me. I, I equate it to this. I equate it to like a Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony came out with a whole lot of hype, right? And he's got a great game, uh, pretty flashy. But he's never been able to 
to win the championship, right? He hasn't been able to close the deal. Tin Cup is like that for me. Like Tin Cup was very, very uh, highly thought of when it came out, much heralded. You know, obviously you've got Kevin Costner there. You've got a really strong cast. And uh, against, you know, a very good, well, a a strong, uh, I would say, script. And really for me, and we'll talk about the ending, but there's a lot of that movie that I really like. I think some of the banter is really good. Uh, The overall storyline, though, you know, I've seen that storyline kind of before, and then the ending kind of ruins it for me. Uh, But it certainly has its moments, just like Carmelo, where you say, this this thing's great, this is an all-timer. And then other times where you say, you know, maybe not. Maybe there's a lot more fluff to this thing than actual championship caliber movie. Yeah, one thing that I think works in its favor just because of situation is that, and it's a bummer for this podcast because I love golf, is that there's not a lot of golf movies, especially good golf movies. I think you've got really the main four. You've got Tin Cup, you've got Caddyshack, you've got Happy Gilmore, and then I'm a sucker for Bagger Vance, not the best movie I've ever seen, (laughs) but it's in there. And then it's a lot of like, yeah, so, you know, one of the things is it's it's already it's on the Mount Rushmore of golf movies just because of what it is. Well, so I think funny. it's really the yeah, go ahead. What's funny is you mentioned Happy Gilmore, too. That also came out in 1996. And I was thinking about this earlier. It's kind of like I'll, I'll remember back to when Peyton Manning was drafted and uh, he was up against Ryan Leaf, who was going to be the first pick. And eventually the Chargers took Ryan Leaf and he ended up flaming out. That's the way I think about two golf releases for 1996, because I thought going into it, Tin Cup is going to be, you know, one of those legendary movies that you put in your top 10 and you keep it there. So you got Kevin Costner playing golf. Seems like such a natural. And then you've got Happy Gilmore, right? Happy Gilmore with Adam Sandler. Now, this is at the height of Adam Sandler. But still, you know, it's just going to be a goofy type of movie. You think, okay, it's not going to have any staying power. It's just going to be one of those funny flops. And Happy Gilmore, to me, I can watch that on a Sunday afternoon at any time. And for a movie, though, like like Tin Cup, it's it doesn't quite have that feel for me. Like if it's on the Golf Channel, I won't necessarily flip to it. But if I've got Happy Gilmore on, I'll flip that on, which is the exact opposite of what I expected. And it just turns out that Happy Gilmore is kind of the Peyton Manning for me out of those two. See, I'll min- I'm, I, I want to talk about this a little bit uh, in, a, in a little bit. But to me, Tin Cup is almost like two different movies because the last 50 minutes is basically the U.S. Open and it kind of yeah. has a different vibe. But if, if Tin Cup's in that portion, I'm always turning it on. If it's in the beginning, it's kind of like a Happy Gilmore. It doesn't matter where it is. Yeah, turn it on. Let, let's dial turn in. You've got me for the next two hours. Let's have some stupid laughs. You know, just put it on. You know, you could watch it for five minutes, get a few laughs, flip it back over. But, you know, it's a movie you could flip into, flip out of at any time. Whereas Tin Cup, it's, like you said, it comes on and you're like, well, maybe take it, maybe not. You have to be in the right mood for a movie like that. You reference this though, and I asked, uh, did for love of the game a couple weeks ago, and I asked the guests the same question. And I think it's a little easier to answer than is the movie a Hall of Fame movie or not? Is Costner the best movie athlete of all time, in your opinion? Uh, well, no, because that would be Michael Jordan. Okay, that's <laughs> that's fair. That's a very fair point. Is he for the best, Space Jam? Uh, I mean, come movie on. Actor? Or if, okay, if you say actor who's in a movie, then that would be Jim Brown, right? For the Dirty Dozen. So you can go either way. But if you're saying an actor who is portraying an athlete, then I I thought about this. And I guess it has to be Costner. Um, And and I'll tell you, he does a really nice job in this movie of being a golfer. You know, his swing looks pretty good. He really plays the part very, very well. Uh, and, And it just seems like a natural character for him. So, you know, you look at what he's done in baseball. Bull Durham is, of course, one of the top ones and uh, and Field of Dreams. And he looked like naturals there to me. And then this movie, he really did well. I think, you know, the one movie that really sticks out that he didn't portray, you know, as an athlete or as in the sports realm, I guess, would be draft day. I really wasn't buying him as a GM, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, we did draft day about two months ago now. We did actually on the NFL draft and uh, on NFL draft day. And yeah, not uh weren't as glowing of his performance, but yeah, this movie, you know, he looks great as an athlete. He even, uh, you know, real quick rips off, uh, two swings with a baseball bat from both sides of the plate in this movie. So he does it all, you know, he looks great before we get going, kind of breaking down the movie. Uh, I've started just 
uh, taking a look at the IMDb trivia for each movie we do. And I want to read off a couple kind of noticeable things. I don't want to bring in all the trivia and sprinkle it in throughout the episode, but there are some interesting things that are kind of relevant to um, what we're talking about. First and foremost, uh, you know, many of the golf shots of Costner's character were actual shots by Costner. I mean, he's a he's a good athlete, good golfer. The uh, grandparents and grandchild with the dog in the the scene where Sims just just turns into the worst person ever. Uh, you know, turning down the autograph were actually Costner's parents, and the grandchild was his son. Which, which I did is, not realize that. I did not know that. That is really interesting. His parents were actually in for love of the game too. They had a they had a quick role too. So Costner just just spreading the uh, spreading spread the work around. Nepotism yes. in Hollywood. I'll tell uh, you. Pierce Brosnan was considered for the role of David Sims, which is interesting. Could have worked. Could have worked. Yeah, I really and like then, Don Johnson. He seemed to play that character very. I well. loved. I love Don Johnson. So we'll we'll talk about. It. I love Don Johnson in this movie. Um, the scene and this one always irks me because I went to college in Odessa, Texas, and Roy <laughs> and his crew in the are meeting House. at the Waffle House. Yeah, and they're arguing about you know if the Waffle House is in Midland or Odessa. You know what, guys? I have got a little extra cash. Why don't we all just go somewhere a little fancy and celebrate? Why? Well, in honor of, you know... The Waffle House, Doreen. Well, I know, and I love the Waffle House. I've been dreaming about waffles for 1,800 miles. Yeah, me too. You know, there's a Waffle House exactly like this in Odessa, Texas. Yeah. Odessa? It's in Midland, ain't it? No, it's in Odessa. Honey, it's in Odessa. I'm from Odessa, and it's in Odessa. I was born there, honey, and that's where... As someone who went to school in Odessa and it was right next to Midland, there was a Waffle House in neither. And it infuriated me because I love Waffle House. It's one oh, of my favorite, favorite drunk or hungover eats. Sure. So every time I watch this movie, it just drives me insane. Uh, Roy McAvoy's final overall score in the U.S. Open was a one under par 287. Four-round scores were 83, 62, 64, and 78. Obviously, the bulk of that 78 coming on the final hole. Uh John Leguizamo was considered for the part of Romeo. No, you couldn't have, you couldn't have casted that any different than what they did. Yeah, yeah, Cheech I agree. did a great job. He really uh, did. Dennis Quaid turned down the role of David Sims, and this is all per IMDb. I, I have worked. this like suspicion. Yeah, I have this suspicion that IMDb is kind of like Wikipedia, yeah. but uh, you know, I'm just yeah, I'm just rolling with it. He would have been better than Randy Quaid. Randy Quaid could have been interesting. Take that character in a different direction entirely. That that would turn this movie closer into Happy Gilmore. <laughs> right. And then the last bit of trivia, and the one that I, I think is the most interesting, the scene at the end of the movie where you know Roy tanks his chances at the U.S. Open, Gary McCord, who's actually the commentator uh, in the movie um, with the handlebar mustache, he's an actual commentator, he's a pro golfer in 1987 tournament, he had a shot similar to Costner's, he needed a birdie to win and went for it. Hit it in the water over and over again. Finally made the shot, but it cost him 15 strokes. And then the uh, the scene where Roy wins that bar bet by hitting the Pelican is also yeah. based on an incident from McCord's career. So I thought that was pretty interesting, you know, and how it pertains to the movie and the plot. And McCord is the announcer there in the bar, famously takes the uh, the soda jerk there and, and talks into it and announces that shot in the bar. So it's pretty pretty well done there. That's pretty good writing. Yeah, pretty good turn for uh, McCord in this movie. So the let's thing, get right into it. The oh, thing that ahead. they missed, though, that they did miss, that I picked up when doing some online research, is that you know they make a big deal out of uh, Roy and and David both going to the same school, which is Houston, right? And the fact that they won championships together there, and not once, even though Jim Nance and his his loud voice, how many times has Jim Nance said that him and Fred Couples roomed together at Houston? About 9 million times I've heard that story. Not once was that connection made in that movie, which just, it, it's amazing that they didn't work that into the writing at all at the it's same school. It's a huge school. missed opportunity. Yeah, same school, same, there's parallels all over the place, and they didn't once even give it a nod, and I think that's just a huge missed opportunity. And how did Jim Nance not know who this guy really was going into it if he went to the same school that Jim Nance did and won championships there in golf then Jim Nance would know who he is. So that's a that's a problem that I have with this movie. That absolutely fits what we do with this podcast, kind of focusing on the realism and the authenticity. It's really one of the most unrealistic parts. Before we break down, you know, the authenticity though, 
Uh, this is something new for this episode. What was your favorite scene? This is different from the big chill. I've got a couple nominations for just what the best scene is, most enjoyable scene. I've got the uh, the charity tournament bet uh, with a featuring a young Phil Mickelson golfing yes. with a bat and a shovel. Uh, the pelican yeah. shot in the bar in the in the bar or the final scene if that's your thing. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> so so one this is actually two scenes that that I enjoyed. Um, kind of the beginning of the problem and then the end of it. And it's a little bit more germane, but it really it, it really hits me deep as a golfer. It, it really gets to my soul is that where he just develops the shanks. And even as a golfer, anybody who's a, who's a golfer understands that even to say that word, you know you're inviting the golf gods to do bad things with your game. And he gets the shanks there on the, on the driving range. And here he's played golf his entire life. He's obviously been a champion back in college. He knows the game, and he's just so befuddled. You know, he turns to Cheech, and they sit there on the range forever hitting balls, just trying to figure this thing out. And he brings it with him then in the second scene to the U.S. Open where he's on the driving range once again. And inexplicably, by the way, he lines up on the far side of the range where there's a possibility if he shanks it, he'd hit it right down the line of all the other players and not at the other end of the range where he could have just hit it and it probably would have just hit you know, a fence or maybe gone into the crowd or something. But nonetheless, uh, Cheech steps up as any good caddy should and figures out a way for him to, 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 uh, to correct those shanks first by telling him he needs to change his change from one, uh, pocket to the other, and then adjust his hat, turn his hat around and just do whatever he can to stop thinking about the matter at hand, which is the fact that he's shanking the ball and it magically, uh, you know, the shanks go away just as mysteriously as they show up and, and he's able to hit the ball and, and go on to perform well at the U S open. But I think that that speaks to any real golfer out there who has had that happen where everything seems to be going well. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, you develop the shanks and you're just, no matter how good you are at golf, no matter how much you know about the game, you're just left kind of looking around to your playing partners or your caddy going, what just happened? What, what do I need to do to get rid of these things? And the way Cheech gets him to, to get rid of them is just uh, completely in character with what a caddy would do, I think, in a case like that. It was super relatable for any golfer. So is the the shanks, is that your best scene and your most authentic? Because I think it could work for both. Yeah, I'll give it both. I'll definitely give it both. Because um, it's just so real to any golfer. It speaks to anybody who's ever gone through that. What I've got for most authentic is is almost a small thing. It's it's more two things. Uh, Costner and Don Johnson do a great job. They they pull this off that you can you really feel their dynamic and uh, the characters they're playing. I think they make the movie feel realistic and and authentic in a lot of ways. The other super authentic thing is Phil Mickelson gambling on the golf course. <laughs> Oh, touche. That is well done. Yeah, absolutely. We all know Phil Phil will never turn down a bet. In fact, that movie it could be based upon Phil with how much that Roy bets throughout it, because that is Phil, from what I hear, to a T. So that is well done. Can you imagine when they pitch in that? Like, hey, uh, Phil, we, um, you know, we, we need you for a bit role in this movie. And uh, you, you're going to be gambling on a golf shot. His eyes probably lit up. <laughs> no doubt. Even at that age, a young Phil Mickelson, just at the beginning of his, his ascent into golf. And uh, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, even at that point. And, and, and knowing Phil, Phil already knew that he knew everything about gambling and he knew everything about life, even at that young age. So he was definitely all over that. Yeah, my least authentic in this movie is that uh, Dr. Molly Griswold has horrible taste in men. There's no way she right. goes for Roy McAvoy. No. She's a doctor. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, and here's, here's another problem that I have, and that is the two main characters, right? In terms of, you take Renee out of it, or Renee Russo, uh, take her out of it. If you talk about um, Roy... And then David, who's, you know, his, his main competition there. And you start looking at who's the better guy there. And you remove that scene where David, you know, doesn't give the autograph to the kid or whatever else. And he looks like a bad dude. Everything else that David does, he's the only guy in that movie who's not an enabler for Roy. Right. He, he, he fires him on the course at the beginning where, you know, a caddy would get fired in that case. Uh, you know, you're trying to show you're, he's showing up his player. So 
he's going to get fired by 90% of the guys on tour and only a guy who's enabling all this behavior would, would keep him on. Which um, is Roy and all his entourage. His entourage just enables him and tells him how great he is all the, the time. The whole time. And then he tries to teach him another lesson when he wins that bet and hits the seven iron down the road, right? And then, you know, he shows he's merciless. He, he goes back and he gives the car back to Roy. No strings attached. Meanwhile, you have Roy on the other side, who, who's pretty whiny throughout the movie, right? He never really learns anything throughout it. He's kind of the same as he was at the beginning. He goes and grabs David's girlfriend, right? And just unapologetically goes after her. He gets her. He, he's, he's pissed away his talent. Um, and we talk about that at the beginning. And at the end, you're not even sure that he's going to go on and take this newfound success and take it to new levels, you know, because he seems pretty uh, uninspired by the fact that he's going to be have, you know, at least a, a partial tour card there at the end uh, with his finish at the U.S. Open. He doesn't even sound like he's going to go out and practice and get on the tour or anything like that. Uh, he, he's got some alcoholic tendencies, obviously. I mean, this guy. I don't, I don't know. You take out that one scene and I'm not saying that David's necessarily that bad of a guy. It's like, who are you rooting for in this case? And I guess you do for Roy, but it's a problem that, it, that I think has, has some legs as I, as I watch that movie again now after watch, first watching it back in the 90s. Maybe Molly doesn't end up with with uh david because i mean he does like he he's this massive jerk to that small kid like david's not the best guy but she doesn't end up with roy like in five years especially with these new connects she has in pro golf like she's dating a david duvall or a justin leonard she's she's getting in that crowd she's molly is molly is advancing she she's getting better she's not going down to roy she's a she's a doctor she's not she's just not ending up with roy it's not happening no way yeah, yeah. You, you think she's going to have a role in the hay with Craig Stadler? Is that what you're suggesting? I think, I mean, it's more it's more <laughs> likely than Roy. At least he's an established professional golfer. Yeah, he's a little, you know, a little hefty and bearded. But, uh, you know, he's still um, he's still an established professional golfer. Yeah, you know Phil Mickelson would have ended up with Renee Russo in this. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I, feel, I mean, Phil's going to end up. Point. Phil's in the movie. He would have ended up with her. You know, we, we all know that. But that's that's you know, playing armchair quarterback on this whole thing. Another thing, speaking of armchair quarterback, as, as I watch it again, we didn't have a certain golfer. We mentioned Tiger Woods. There's another certain golfer that wasn't on the scene yet. Hadn't even, I don't know if he, I guess he had been born, but wasn't on the scene, which totally makes this movie completely different. And that's Rory McIlroy. Because every single time they say Roy's name in this, I kept thinking Rory McIlroy, which totally screws with your mind. Rather than hearing Roy McIlroy, you hear Rory. And it's just, it drives me nuts rewatching this movie. If Roy McIlroy had actually been a real guy, those connections would have been made when Rory came on the scene. That's right. That's right. And so every time Jim Nance would say his name, I was thinking in my head, Rory, every single time. It's tough to rewatch. Let's uh, let's swing into what actually felt authentic, what worked, because this movie did do a lot of really good things. Yeah. Uh, as far as as far as the sports go, as far as golf, you know, what what sticks out to you? What was authentic? What was realistic? Well, number one, I just love cameos. I love cameos oh, yeah. in any movie, and this one's got a ton, got a ton, and. You've got not only kind of the bigger stars, you know, you've also got the smaller guys out there that that I like. You know, you have the Fred Couples, which is great. And he wasn't even in there for very long. Uh, You had Peter Jacobson, who was big at the time. You had uh, Craig Stadler, who was big at the big at the time. Um, Johnny Miller, who was big. But, you know, Steve Elkington, Steve Elkington. That's right. That's a good one. Corey Pavin, who is who is pretty big at the time. Now you look back and say, oh, yeah, that guy. I I just love having those guys kind of around the game uh, in there in different spots. Uh, Lee Jansen. You know, I I thought there's it was funny. The scene where Cheech is like, oh, should I go up to Lee Jansen to get his autograph? Nowadays, that goes over everybody's head. They're like, the hell's Lee Jansen? You know, Roy hitting chili peppers up Lee Jansen's ass. I look like a fool. Well, what the hell do you think you look like shooting them chili peppers up Lee Jansen's ass? 
<laughs> right, right. It was Lee Jansen and Billy Mayfair. Those are the two that he wanted to go get autographs from. It's like, yeah, yeah, that one really didn't hold up now nowadays. But it's funny to look back kind of with, the, with a sense of nostalgia on all of those guys. So I really thought they did a nice job with the cameos. And they didn't really feel forced. I mean, naturally, it's a, it's a golf movie. It's about a tournament. You're going to have a bunch of guys. Uh, but, you know, I, it felt really natural. And I thought all the players who were in there did a good job. You know, their lines didn't didn't stick out as being poorly delivered or anything like that. So I, I thought they did a really nice job with that. Yeah, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here with this podcast, but I just I want to continually continually praise movies that do this, that bring in actual professionals and I think it just helps the environment of the movie. It helps it be, you know, realistic. Little Big League back in the 90s does a great job of this. They lined up, you know, 15 MLB All-Stars and got them in the movie. And and got a a real broadcasting crew, which is what they did in this movie too, which I think makes the U.S. Open scene so good. Yeah, having, I wonder how much you know, money, having the crew out there, how much money CBS Sports handed over because they are just all over this thing. I mean, it looks like it's sponsored by CBS. The entire thing from start to finish. When they get to that U.S. Open scene, like every single shot, you see something either on a shirt or on a banner or something out there. I thought, which is which is realistic. I mean, if you actually watch a tournament, that's what you're going to see. So uh, it was very appropriate. And like you said, the announcers, Ken Venturi, rest in peace on Ken, um, Jim Nance, Johnny Miller. Those are all the guys, Gary McCord. Those are all the guys who were actually doing it. Uh, Peter Costas was there. He was on the course. I thought I thought that was really well done. Yeah, I think that helps the authenticity of the movie. It helps it feel like you're actually watching a golf tournament, which I think this movie needed in the second half of that movie. Uh, I, another thing that I liked was the uh, just the quote, let the big dog eat. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't golfing in 96. I was five. But that is, since I've gotten into golf, as I've been growing up, that is part of the, the golf jargon. Like, that is something that people say, you know, let the big dog eat. And it, maybe it's just from this movie, but it works. I enjoy that. Yeah, and I don't know if that was... I know it had been out before this movie, but, you know, I was at my golfing pinnacle in high school back in 96. So that was that really was like a big thing out there on the course. So uh, that was that was jargon that either was spurned by this movie or reflected in the movie. But either way, you're absolutely right. I love that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing that that's not necessarily sports related, but uh, a guy doing something really stupid to impress a woman. That's really authentic. That's that's as realistic as it gets. Very true. Very true. And then the last 50 minutes, I mentioned this earlier, but the movie kind of it's two different movies in the last 50 minutes being the U.S. Open with what we talked about with the broadcasting crew and the music changes. They get rid of that kind of kind of like corny folksy country music and it gets to the serious golf music that kind of gets you in the mood and i love how they make that shift in the movie that hey this is now a serious golf movie he's playing a serious prestigious you know prestigious tournament i really love it and like i said if i turn on this movie on golf channel and it's in the u.s open portion of the movie the back 50 minutes i am all in Yeah, they have like an original score that starts there halfway through the movie. And and it sounds like, you know, like a John Williams was behind it or something because the, the, the music really takes over and really sets the tone. Uh, bad pun, but sets the tone for for the movie and really just how epic it is and how big of an event the U.S. Open is so that somebody who's not necessarily a big golfer would be able to tune in and instantly know that, hey, this is a big deal. This is not just, you know, at the pitch and punt, some, some little uh, tournament. This is something that really means something. Yeah, the uh, music was done by a guy named William Ross, but I, I can't believe we're almost you know, 20, 20 plus minutes in a recording, and I forgot to mention one of the reasons why this movie is so good and so sports rich, and especially this, you can sense his presence in the back half of this movie in the U.S. Open, is that Ron Shelton directed and wrote it. So, you know, Ron Shelton obviously did White Man Can't Jump, did Bull Durham, uh, you know, did, uh, you know, has is like the, the king of directing sports movies at this point. So I, I'm almost ashamed that I didn't mention him earlier in the movie, but it's a, it's a Ron Shelton movie, so it makes sense that it would have a lot of great sports-related aspects about it. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if he's part of the reason that we have kind of these soliloquies 
from Kevin Costner because you see it in Bull Durham. We start saying the things that he believes. And then at the beginning in this movie with Renee, where he's Molly, I keep calling her by her actual name, uh, where he's on the on the um, driving range with her and he starts into, you know, f- philosophizing about golf and goes into a long speech again. That seems to be kind of a kind of a hallmark. I don't know if that's more of a Kevin Costner thing or, or whether it's more of a, a him thing there uh, directing it. But uh, but it definitely is a thread that connects those two movies. Yeah, that monologue about the golf swing, which is something I also yeah. enjoy in this movie. It's it's a little bit corny, but I kind of like when Roy goes into that monologue about the, it's it's almost like a humanizing thing about him or a sympathetic thing about him. Makes you root for him a little bit that he feels that about golf because there's a lot of things about Roy that you're like, eh, this guy's kind of a douche. <laughs> I mean, what is the what is the golf swing by Roy McAvoy? Well, I tend to think of the golf swing as a poem. Oh, he's doing that portrait thing again. Critical opening phrase of this poem will always be the grip, which the hands unite to form a single unit by the simple overlap of the little finger. Right. And lowly and slowly, the club head is led back, pulled into position, not by the hands, but by the body, which turns away from the target, shifting weight to the right side without shifting balance. Tempo is everything, perfection unattainable. As the body coils now to the top of the swing, there's a slight hesitation, a little nod to the gods. A, a nod to the gods? Yeah, to the gods. That he is fallible. That perfection is unattainable. And now the weight begins shifting back to the left, pulled by the powers inside the earth. It's alive, this swing, a living sculpture. And down through contact, always down, striking the ball crisply with character. A tuning fork goes off in your heart, your balls. Such a pure feeling as the well-struck golf shot. Right, right. Well, I, and I think that's certainly a tool that's used to humanize him and make him sound like, you know, the common guy who has a lot of passion because he, he seems like he doesn't care about anything. Right. He really doesn't. And this really shows that, hey, he does have passion. He does have a lot of heart. And this is where this is where you see it. Absolutely, because you could see a real life path of Roy if he doesn't get involved with the doctor and he does he just kind of keeps living life the way he's living where he just turns into even more of a bum than he is when you first meet him in the movie running that driving range. So, uh, yeah. And if the, she uh, leaves him at the end, he, he's right back there at the driving range. I think. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He's just, he's just she needs to keep out. driving him. Otherwise he's right back at that range. Is there anything else that, that felt authentic or realistic to you that you want to point out? Uh, well, we talked a little bit about his golf swing. I thought his golf swing for the most part, uh, was pretty realistic and that's Kevin Costner's throughout. The one problem that I have with this movie and with a whole lot of golf movies is what happens once you get around the green, because even him, the chipping just doesn't seem quite natural. It doesn't seem like it flows as well as the longer swings. And then whenever we get to putting, I it always bugs me the follow through. It seems like all of these guys always follow through way too high after they hit the ball, and that just doesn't happen. You continue a low, you know, a low trajectory with the club head and try and keep it along the green and toward the hole, and everybody seems to finish high. So that kind of drives me nuts. But you know, from the positives, I think the longer swings he did do a nice job. Roy McAvoy was walking in putts before Tiger was. So that, that's true. That's something of note. He was definitely doing the uh, the high putter hold after knocking in a clutch putt. And I don't have a problem with that, but it's like when he's actually lined up and he hits the putt, it's like the putter comes up just too quickly, just too quick. He's, he's like lifting after that in one scene. And it just bugs me every time I see that. Yeah, it doesn't look like a pro. But before we get into to what didn't work or what wasn't uh, super authentic, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Is there anything more gratifying than seeing your dog's excitement when you give them a new treat? Why not get that joy delivered to your door every month with BarkBox? BarkBox Paw picks the best all-natural treats and innovative toys to match a dog's unique needs, including allergies and heavy chewer preferences, and delivers them right to your door. BarkBox is a great way to try a variety of treats and toys from local and small businesses that you may not otherwise be able to find. New and unique toys continue to keep dogs engaged, interested, and happy. And if your dog doesn't like something in the box, BarkBox will send you something they love for free because they're all about dog happiness. For listeners of Big Screen Sports, BarkBox is offering an opportunity to treat your pets to one free extra month of BarkBox 
at getbarkbox.com slash big screen. Just choose your dog size and choose a one, six, or 12 month plan and get BarkBox shipped to your door on the 15th of every month. All plans ship free and can be canceled anytime. So remember, go to getbarkbox.com slash big screen and treat your pup every month with BarkBox. That's getbarkbox.com slash big screen. All right, so let's get into what wasn't realistic or what didn't work for you. Okay, first, Kyle, I've got two more, two more that did work for me. So okay, uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go all positive here. Uh, number one, when we talk about the U.S. Open, and I thought this was a neat line in there where he he says that it's the most democratic of all tournaments, and it is. You know, anybody technically can qualify for this thing. So the road to that that particular tournament, everything that he went through was fairly realistic. You don't see like in Happy Gilmore, where all of a sudden he's competing for this gold jacket. The U.S. Open was based in fact, and they actually did a nice job, I thought, of showing the road to the U.S. Open, and it was fairly realistic for me, uh, as Hollywood can get, uh, with the tournament being really accessible to anybody and being truly democratic. The second thing we've mentioned where this this movie has been ahead of its time, but when he is in the um, uh, therapy room with Molly, they picture him on the couch and they show the bottom of his shoes and he's wearing golf spikes, but he's taken the spikes out of those. And this was right at the time when soft spikes were starting to come on the scene. And you would see that from, from regular club pros at the golf courses that were sick. They'd have to wear golf shoes all the time. And it was sick and tired of walking in golf shoes all the time because having spikes on and being in regular floors or on concrete, it just hurts your feet after a while. So a lot of them would take spikes out before they came out with the soft spikes and stuff. So the fact that he had those out was like, yeah, that's that's actually fairly realistic. That's something that will happen or did happen a lot back then. And and it was a progression in golf as spikes went away. So I thought that that's was a real good well catch. Yeah, that's a real good catch. One another thing with the movie was ahead of its time is bring in the mental aspect of golf. They show kind of towards the end that Molly's racking up these clients and, and stuff. And that's a huge thing in sports. Now I remember late in college for me. I was talking to a sports psychologist and it helped a ton. And I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge thing. Now, uh, most NCAA programs have sports psychologists on staff, you know, working on mental health and, right. And, and all that. So the, the movie was ahead of its time in that regard. Yeah, you're right. And that continues that. And that's only gotten bigger and that's huge, obviously on a, in a sport like golf where it's so individual, uh, the psychological side is just, it's just enormous. So, uh, I think that's well done. Yeah, I agree. Um, so let's get into what, what wasn't realistic or what didn't work for you. What jumps out besides some of the stuff we've already touched on? Kyle, can you go out to a course and beat somebody with garden tools? Absolutely not. There's no, I don't care who it, Tiger could not beat me. No, no, it, it, you're not that. beating anybody with that. I mean, no chance. No, unless you take the garden tools and you like hack the guy to death on like the first tee, then you could play however you want to. But other than that, there's no way that you're winning with garden tools. I thought it was neat. That was fun. That was, you know, maybe for the non-golfer, they're going to enjoy it. And for somebody who is a golfer, you can suspend realis- realism for a little while. So you enjoy the movie, but there's absolutely no way you're winning with garden tools. I would kind of like to see a bet, though, is like some Joe Schmo bets Tiger something like $10,000 that he can't, uh, you know, the Tiger can't beat him. Maybe with like, maybe not garden tools, but maybe Tiger only gets a, you know, like a sand wedge or something or a 60 degree. Right. And a guy and a guy has everything in his bag, one hole, $10,000. I'd be kind of interested in that. But there's no chance that driving range pro Roy McAvoy, no matter how good that he hits the golf ball or how athletic he is can do that. No chance. The other thing I don't think that he does that anybody who's a a golfer and really enjoys the game has been around the game a whole lot. I've noticed that most of those guys are like me and don't generally talk a whole lot of golf. And they also don't talk in golf puns all the time. Like those are usually the guys who pick up the game later in life or something. And just now new to the game. Those are the guys who talk in puns and want to talk golf all the time. Somebody like Roy, who has grown up with the game, been around the game, loves the game, wouldn't talk in all the puns and just talk about golf nonstop. I don't think. And, and the puns really got to me at one point in this movie. I don't think you see that in real life. Yeah. Roy and Roy and the crew. 
Right. What do you think about Roy as a teacher? You see him in bits of two lessons with Molly. I don't think he's a very good golf instructor. He's very patronizing. No, but I think that's fitting with his character. I don't think he's very interested in being a very good teacher. I think Roy is all about Roy and has been throughout that whole thing. So if he would if he would be a very insightful teacher overall and somebody you'd go to, a David Ledbetter type, then that would ruin, you know, kind of the facade that he's putting on here uh, because he's 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 not he's not that type of guy. He, he's really more about him and trying to fix himself so that he can, you know, win the open at, at first or show up a guy or get the girl. He's not all about helping people with their golf games. I don't think he I loves agree. the game in that, that sort of a way, you know. I agree. Uh, also, there's no way that David Sims would be hosting his charity tournament in West Texas. David oh, Sims, they say, no. lives in Houston. Right. Uh, he's a tour pro. There's no way. I don't know if you've ever played West Texas golf, but I have, and West Texas golf isn't fun. Very windy, very desolate. No way. And, and, and where there's is no people? way he's doing a tournament there. Where is people? Why is he driving all the way out there to see Roy? You've got people for that at that level. Come on. You've got agents. You've got somebody who works. You've got a whole committee who puts on that tournament. It's not you going out there. You know, here in Columbus, we have the Memorial Tournament that's hosted by Jack Nicholas. Do you think Jack Nicholas is driving out to anybody's house to say, hey, would you play golf with me or be my caddy for, you know, a Wednesday play around because I don't want to go out there by myself? No, that's not happening. You've got a committee. You've got people for that. There's no way he's making the drive. Makes a nice effect for the movie, but there's no way that happens in real life. He's also got more free time than any golfer in peak season ever because he's there when Roy qualifies for the opener, has his, you know, has his meltdown with uh, breaking all his clubs and everything. He's, he can go out to Salome, which is a made-up town, but it's supposed to be, according to the IMDb, it's supposed to be in between Midland and Fort Stockton, which is in the middle of nowhere, and it is roughly eight to nine hours from uh, David's hometown of Houston. And he's just, he's out there all the time seeing his girlfriend. There's no way he'd be dating the woman out there. He would move her to Houston. It's just, it's insane. He's got all this free time. He's a pro golfer. And then the other thing that bugs me is the clubs. I understand that they're trying to play this up as Roy didn't have any money down on his luck. So he has to pawn his clubs or, and then the clubs that he does have are, are just old and crappy. It's like, okay, I get that. But you still do run a driving range. You still did play in college. You should, between one of those two, have some sort of a connection to have something decent for a bag and never have to pawn it. I mean, you you get at one point in your life, you're getting some of that stuff for free, uh, potentially. And then at the driving range, I don't know. You could always find a way to get a rep out there and get some rep clubs or something. You've got some connections along the way that there's no way that you should be playing with persimmons, woods, and irons from the 1980s at that point in your career. There's No matter how down on your luck you are. Yeah, no way. No way at all. Uh, where? Let, let me rephrase this. So Roy goes to the U.S. Open. First day he shoots an eighty-three. Next day right. he sets a course or sets a U.S. Open record with a sixty-two, and his friends, you know, his his enabling entourage gets in and say, "Oh, we've been on a bus for eighteen hundred miles or whatever." They really wouldn't have turned around after Roy shot an eighty-three, and it was almost a guarantee that he wasn't going to make the cut. Like, like they didn't call. They're like, you know what? We we should probably turn around because we're going to get there, and he's going to be done for the weekend, and we're going to have to head home. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, and it, it it's amazing the way he bookended those four rounds. You shoot an 83, 62, 64, and then the 78 heavily because of that last hole. Uh, but wow, that's a that's that's two damn good rounds that he's got in there. And it's just amazing after starting off with an 83, and I know he was hungover or whatever else, but you usually don't see that kind of a of a variance in golf. Yeah, no way. None at all. Uh, One more thing for me on what didn't work or what wasn't authentic. So in the final round, Roy hits that shot off the porter potty, which is, I mean. He shanked it off the shitter. Yeah, but Gary, but Gary McCord is right there and Roy can hear him. There's that's the most unprofessional thing ever. That wouldn't happen. No, no. Gary McCord is talking in Roy's ear as he's about to hit this shot. You also wouldn't see a player turn and make another bet 
with a, with a commentator and on the air, the commentator take the bet with a player. Cause I'm sure with how stuffy the PGA is, that's probably against some sort of a rule and CBS would probably look unfavorably upon that. So yeah, yeah. That whole scene, although it was fun. And anytime you get Gary McCord into a scene, I'm, I'm all for it. Cause I think he's a fun dude and he just adds a levity to golf that golf needs. So I love it, but you're absolutely right. Not realistic at all. Roy McAvoy's second shot at the second hole has gone deep into the woods. For a report on his plight, let's go down to Gary McCord, who spent most of his life in the woods and in darkness. Gary? Ben, he's in jail here. No chance for parole. In fact, the only thing he's got, he's got to get the ball back in the fairway, try to pitch the ball on the green and get up and down first par. He's got no chance to hit it on the green. 50 bucks says I knock it on from here with a 7-iron. On the green? Right on the green. You got it. Marshall, you want to move these people back right here? I'm going right there. Yeah, I enjoyed the scene. I mean, I again, I enjoy a lot. I enjoy this movie in general. It's a really, you know, fun movie to watch. But yeah, there are some things that just do not, uh, they're not on the level. Was there anything else that didn't work for you, wasn't realistic, wasn't authentic that, that you really noticed? The, the other thing is just how wide-eyed he is when he gets to the U.S. Open and he gets to the driving range. We already know that he's a college player who's played at a championship level, and he's, like, amazed that they have new titleists out on the range. It's like, you know, you go to really nice clubs anywhere, and you've got almost new titleists that are out there, and so you kind of expect that if you know anything about golf, and certainly if you've played golf at that level, you would expect all of that. So that always struck me as, yeah, okay – he's not he's not small town guy in a big time stage here he he should know this stage he, he's been around this stage he hasn't been on it but he's been right there so he shouldn't have been so shocked by that yeah he would have known more of the kind of the mo of the pga tour yes absolutely who is your best on-screen athlete? I feel like it's kind of obvious. Honestly, it's Costner and Johnson are really the only two non-PGA Tour pros right. who play any golf. And if you read that uh, that oral history of the movie, they had them play a ton of golf. This sounds like it would have been the best movie ever to film just because they <laughs> golfed a ton. They both looked the part. You can tell they uh, they didn't show a lot of Don Johnson's shots, or at least from a you know, a straight up angle where it's, it's nothing but the shot they showed in its entirety. There's a lot of angles, quick cuts, things like that, but there was nothing glare. There's nothing worse than a sports movie that the guys just look like a bad athlete where they cast actors who aren't athletic and Costner's the, you know, like I, I touched on earlier, the ultimate actor athlete, but uh, Don Johnson did great work too. So the, you know, they, they knocked it out of the park with, with who they cast. Yeah. Yeah. Both of them did better than, let's say, like a Shooter McGavin. I, I think they were in a different world versus that. So I, I thought they did a nice job with it. And it seemed very realistic. And, you know, they looked the part. I thought one of the neat things that they did in this movie when they got to the U.S. Open portion was they kind of had two different camera angles. It would be either the camera angle you'd see where you'd be kind of under looking at the player and they'd be a closer shot. And then they'd have those shots that were kind of similar to what you would see on the TV if you were watching it at home. And I thought that dynamic was nice because that gave you the closeness to the players, but then also would step back and put it in context for you. So they did a nice job with that. And and in that context, those guys looked absolutely like PGA tour players. I thought. Mm -hmm. I appreciated that. I mean, I think there's really no worst on-screen athlete. I don't think there would be anyone to point out. No. Okay, so let's move into the Lenny Harris Pinch Hitter Award for Best Supporting Character. I've got three nominees. Got Romeo, played by Cheech. Got Gary McCord, played by himself. And then I've got one of the ultimate, oh, it's that guy, and Richard Lineback. He's the guy who played Lance Harbor's dad. He's one of uh, Roy's anno- uh, enabling buddies. He's oh, the one who's wow. always in the cowboy hat uh, who, and, the, and the bolo tie. Very nice. Good pull there. Oh, I, you know, I love, I love Cheech. I just love Cheech. I love that. He's character. awesome in this movie. He's awesome in this movie. He just plays it so well. And, and you know, I think this movie, this was about the time that he was reinventing himself, really. And uh, this movie was a big part of that. And you could see why, because he's got a, he, he's, he plays, you know, kind of the happy go lucky guy. 
but he also plays that a little bit of sensitivity in there. And he's also kind of able to deal with Roy in a way that no one, no other, um, character in this movie can and i think that's exactly what a caddy does and so i thought he captured that aspect of a caddy just so well he's probably the most likable character in the movie yeah which i think makes yeah, him an easy back. pick for, yeah. for best supporting character and when he when he ends up with uh with the strip club owner at the end it's like that was a feel-good moment. Like, this movie, after I was upset about the ending, it's like you see that, and you're like, okay, he's going to be all right. I'm happy to see that. You know, you could pan, you could come back to Roy in two years, and he could be back at the driving range. But at least, you know, that, that Cheech had some things going on, was feeling pretty good about his life. I like that. You felt good for Romeo. But felt good for you, mentioned, you mentioned the ending. I think it's time to talk about that final scene, the final shot. Now, this is a 12 guy. Now he's got to start worrying about qualifying for next year's Open and the Masters here. Well, he's lost this tournament. He'll end up selling Countess Maritais and renting golf carts the rest of his life. Look at this. I, I, I don't know, even though what I'm feeling right, this is the most painful thing I've ever seen. You know what's crazy, Jimmy? If he doesn't finish the hole with this ball, he can't turn in a card. He's disqualified. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, dear Lord, please. Oh, dear so ruin the up, entire Roy's, movie for me. go ahead <laughs> Roy set it is up. uh 240 out which is funny because right now, now that's nothing if if it was yeah. Roy McElroy he you know he's that's nothing for him that's an easy shot four iron yeah exactly uh so hit me with it what are your thoughts final scene Roy is uh Roy could go go win the U.S. Open or go you know work for a tie and a playoff what are your thoughts on the final scene yeah so if he pars the hole then he's going to go in the playoff. If he birdies the hole, he wins the whole dang thing. And, you know, his decision to hit the ball, I didn't have a problem with because that's completely in character. I get it, right? So, uh, you know, David lays up and does the right thing. He knows exactly what he needs to do to win this thing. And he decides that he's still going to go for the green. I'm fine with that. I, I actually am. That's something that I could see somebody being a maverick uh, who really wants, you know, they want to keep that aspect of his his personality in there. So that's fine that he goes for it. But once he hits it in the water, you've got to drop the ball. It's just going to drive me nuts for the end of time that he did not drop after that, especially, especially since that ball crossed the hazard, hit on the green, then went back into the hazard meaning he could drop on that side. And essentially there, he's hit one to there. He hits two into the water. He's dropping three. He's hitting four. He could chip in and win the U.S. Open. He could chip that bad boy in. And I guess maybe that's not artsy enough for people. And maybe that's the way I would have written the end of that movie. He's still, he's making the right play. He still went and had the Maverick moment. And then at the end, he chips it in, wins the damn thing. Everybody's happy. But no, no, he hits it in the water, and rather than dropping there or dropping back from the hazard at any point, maybe he hits a wedge really well. Maybe he wants to drop it 100 yards. Maybe he wants to drop it 120. He could do – he has so many options there. He decides he wants to hit it once again from 240 yards again and again and again and again. And then, of course, he holes it out. And when he does, he captures the hearts and minds of just millions, I guess. But not me. I was sitting there in the movie theater just completely upset. It was like 16-year-old me or whatever I was at that age who knew the game of golf, knew how big the four majors are, and in particular the U.S. Open, and to watch him just piss it away by taking a 12 on that hole when all he had to do was par. And for him and how he was playing, a birdie was very easily reachable if he would have just dropped that damn ball and then chipped it from there. And I don't know why he did it. It ruined the movie for me. And it's unfortunate because there's a whole lot of that movie that I liked more than than didn't like. And that just ruined it there at the end. I don't even like him going for it. And here's why. Because it cements that his character learned absolutely nothing yes. over the course of the movie. He did not absolutely. grow, yep. did not grow as a human. Because what they could have come back on was he he's missed that shot three days in a row. But they show it on Friday. When he sets the record round, he goes in the water. But what does he do? He's in the drop zone. He chips onto the green, and he one-putts. And so if he would have laid up, done the same thing, he birdies. He wins the U.S. Open. It would have shown the character growing and listening, and it would 
you know, it would have been in a real character turn and a real moment of growth and shown that that Molly was actually a good influence. And instead, it just he doesn't learn anything. He just tanks the U.S. Open. He costs himself hundreds of thousands of dollars. And his character is still arrogant and everything. And I hate at the end, my, the line I hate the most is Molly saying, in five years, no one will remember the Open, but they'll remember that shot. No, they'll remember who won the Open because being a major winner is one of the yeah. the things they cannot take away from you in golf. Shout out Mike Weir, who won the Masters. Martin Keimer won the... I think he won the U.S. Open. It's just, if you're a major winner, it is life-changing, and you are a major winner. No one is going to care about that that knock-in for 12, except when they're showing biggest blunders in sports history. So it just shows that he didn't, you know, get any humility in this movie. He's just still the same guy at the end of the movie, which is really frustrating because you'd like to think that getting this mental work with with Molly was good for him and and getting to where he was but no he's just the same fucking dude isn't that the funny part like that was the whole the whole the whole reason we went on this journey was he was with Molly and Molly was giving him all this mental help and he was really helping him grow as a human and ultimately it was like Seinfeld you know the famous thing about Seinfeld is none of the characters ever grew and that was intentional on their part. And in this movie, you, I thought it was intentional to show his growth, but ultimately they didn't. And what? And if they really would have wanted to show his growth, you still want to show he's a maverick, then have him hit that shot. I, I disagree with you on this. I still have him hit that shot, but then I have him look back in the crowd and look back in the crowd and look at his crew, his motley ass crew of people that he's got there that all would be helped immensely by the money that he's about to get, by where he could bring them if he wants to share it with them and really build an organization around what he could do on the golf course. You know, all of a sudden you've got a caddy, right? You've got a caddy, Cheech's character there, Romeo, who's making some money. You know, then the the strip club owner, she's got some money there. He And all those other guys are running security for him. They're, ta- they're handling sponsorships. He's got an agent. All of these guys have roles. They've got money and they're all being built a better life. It's not just Roy being Roy. That's truly growth to me. And that never happens. That group never did. And I don't think at the end of this movie, he's thinking in those terms at all. He's still thinking about himself and maybe Molly, though I don't even think that's very clear. So I think that would have been a way that you could probably do both where he still wins the U.S. Open. He's still a maverick and he still shows that growth where he's now responsible for other people. He recognizes that rather than being just this bum at a driving range, that he could be leading a bunch of people who can make better lives for themselves. Exactly. And I'm not someone who's in the camp of I always want the the team to win at the end of the sports movie or, you know, something like that. But I think this movie would and, I, you know, I, I guess this goes into the question of, you know, how we would improve the movie. We do it in different ways, but we'd have him win the U.S. Open. And show that growth, like growth. Like I would have loved a callback to Romeo saying, "Hey, on Friday, you, you yeah. know, you hit it out of the the drop zone. You could lay up to right there, and I think that you know that's your best chance to birdie. That's how you birdie. You're not playing for par. You're playing for a birdie right there. That's your best chance. I would have loved to have seen that growth, and we didn't get it. We got robbed of it, which we is did. a really unfortunate way for this movie to end. I, I wanted to see that, and then I wanted to see David be more of a character that I didn't like. Because like I said, there's a case to be made for David actually being a positive influence in Roy's life entirely as being the one guy who's not enabling everything that he's doing. And I I really needed him to be a batter guy and somebody you really want to beat. Then once he does that, then he goes on to win the U.S. Open to beat him, and you have that really good release at the end of the movie, and that just didn't happen. And like I said, I think that part of the movie was probably made for artsy folks who who aren't necessarily into golf, don't really know what the U.S. Open's all about, and really how that relates to golf and to golf fans and how big of a deal it was because you got to have that kind of an ending to complete this movie. I'm, I'm with you. You don't always have to win at the end, but in this case, he had to win the U.S. Open. Yeah, Roy came out a massive loser, which is unfortunate. Let's finish up with the big chill. Uh, it's the moment that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It's the moment all great sports movies have a, have a big chill moment. 
And this one, I've only got one nominee because the final shot for me is not a big chill moment. I think that that's how the filmmakers intended it to be, but it's not. When that shot goes in, I'm like, what the fuck, Roy? You're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. What's a big chill for me is that sun, that scene, the Sunday morning at the U.S. Open where they show the sun coming up. They're oh, showing yeah. the landscapers. They've got the music. Uh, they show Roy and, Roy and Romeo are the only people out of the driving range. And I mean, and it's... You know, the ass crack of dawn, Roy's not teeing off until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I love that. That gave me, I know it was something I forgot about until I did my rewatch. Like, that gave me the chills. No, that's good. I, I'm still going to go with, with the final shot where he makes it. And the only reason I do is because they do it so well. They get the crowd into it, and you can really see that connection. And it gets me excited for a while until my, my brain kicks in and goes, no, you dummy, he should have dropped. And so it's like my heart fighting my head. And just the fact that they even got that reaction out of me when my head is saying, this guy's a dumbass. Any real golfer would have dropped there a hundred out of a hundred times. But I still am along for the ride when he makes it. And I'm still buying into the crowd reaction and the whole nine yards that, that he's a hero in the moment there for a second. But then my brain kicks in and says, you can't, you can't enjoy this. This is not the way it should happen. It is cool when you see the shot go in. They get, they get the crowd. I will admit, like they did it, they did it right in terms of the actual filming of the moment. Uh, but it, it is kind of a bummer way to end what I think is a really good sports movie. It's a really authentic sports movie. It's one of the better golf movies, you know, partly because there's just not as many good golf movies, which really, really sucks. That's a conversation for another time. Why aren't there more good golf movies? But I love Tin Cup. Uh, you know, we can we can pick at it a lot and, you know, talk about Roy's lack of growth, but it's a really good movie. And I had a great time talking, you know, talking with you about it. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Uh, tell the listeners where they can uh, follow you. Yeah, so the best spot is on Twitter at reflog underscore 18. That's just golfer backwards. And I, I really appreciate you coming on. I really enjoyed talking about this movie. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode of Big Screen Sports, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Check out past episodes. Check out what we've got upcoming. I think we've got uh, the Bad News Bears and Necessary Roughness on the horizon, so some good ones there. Follow us on Twitter at big underscore screen sport and Instagram at big screen sports pod for upcoming episode info and just some general sports movie content. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to rate, leave a review, and catch us next Thursday. Thanks. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.